Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to come before you. And, and Lord, just for the season as we think about you and, and your birth and reason that you came, help, help us to always remember that. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Isaiah chapter 48, uh, starting at verse 1. Hear you this, O house of Jacob, which are called by the name of Israel, and are come forth out of the waters of Judah, which swear by the name of the Lord, and make mention of God of Israel, but not in truth, nor in righteousness. For they tell, call themselves the holy city, and, say, and stay themselves upon the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. They have declared the former, th I have declared the former things from the beginning, and they went forth out of my mouth, and I showed them. I did, I did them suddenly, and they came to pass. Because I knew that you are obstinate, and your neck is an iron sinew, and your brow brass, I have even from the beginning declared it to you. Before it came to pass, I showed it to you, lest you should say, My idol hath done them, and my graven image and my molded image hath commanded them. You have heard, see all this, and will not declare it. I have shown you new things from, the, from this time, even hidden things, and you did not know them. They are created now, and not from the beginning, even before the day when you heard them not, lest you should say, Behold, I knew them. Yea, you heard not, yea, you knew not, yea, from the time that, that your ear was not open, for I knew that you would deal treacherously and was called a, trans, and was called a transgressor from the womb. All right, this is God talking to the, the children of Israel. Whoops, sorry. And it's kind of an interesting thing. He says, here, pay attention, <laughs> O house of Jacob, which is called by the name of Israel. You know, so Israel was the name given to Jacob when he fought with the angel. And it says, you have prevailed with God. And it says, you're calling yourself after Jacob, whose name was Israel. You're calling yourself my people. But he's going to go on to say, your heart's far from me. <laughs> and we look at this, and he says, you came forth out of the waters of Judah and swore by the name of the Lord and make mention of God of Israel. So he says, you're doing everything you're supposed to do, but <laughs> not in truth and righteousness. They knew what to say. They knew how to think. They knew what they were supposed to do but they weren't doing it. And this is a danger for us as Christians sometimes, or people who claim to be Christians in most cases. They know the right words. They know how to sound good. They know how to, to say that what, you're, what is right and wrong, but they don't do it truthfully or righteously. Maybe they're doing it self-righteously so they can say, look at me. Or they're just saying the words. And this is very important, and you see it all the time with many Christians. They'll judge others for not doing the things that they know that they should be doing, but they're not doing them either. And they'll speak all the right words and say all the right things, but they're not speaking in truth and righteousness because they're not living it. They're hypocritical. And the Jews are famous for this even to this day. 
it look like I'm obeying God without necessarily obeying God, or let me obey God, but my heart is not in it. And when I was in Christian school, I saw a lot of the kids that were this way. I'm going to do everything I'm supposed to do. I'm going to say the things I'm supposed to say. I'm going to act the way I'm supposed to act, but I'm not, you know, uh, if I could get away with it, I'd be doing something totally different, and you knew it. <laughs> you know, they weren't, they weren't uh, anything but uh, quiet about it, you know, it's, if I could just get away with it, if mom and dad wouldn't get me, if the school wouldn't get me, I would. And sure enough, they would find other kids that were in the same way and be just as misbehaving and just as bad as they would have been in a public school, except that the you know, student population didn't join, you know, the bulk of the student population didn't join in with them and the instructors caught them a lot faster. So we see this, we see this issue, they're saying, you're not being obedient. You're calling on God's name. You're saying the right things, but you're not speaking truth. You're not really believing it. And this is the key, and we've all seen people that will say that they're a Christian, to a degree might even say the right things, but their heart isn't being changed. And then you go, is this person really, truly a believer? And I'm beginning to come to the conclusion there's a lot of people out there that say they're a believer that aren't. Now, Jesus said, many in that day will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I? But I'm really beginning to wonder how many people truly get saved? How many people have become a new creation in Christ? That have said, God, I need you and totally surrendered their life. There's lots of people who have said the prayer. Lots of people who confess and may even be good people, but they're not doing it in true righteousness. And I'm not their judge. God is going to judge them, but it's scary if they don't sit down and judge themselves. They're going to hear these words from God. Yeah, you, you called on my name. You called yourself the right thing, but it wasn't in truth. And so our job is to make sure we surrender to God and let him change us. And it is fun to watch somebody who's been changed. You watch them grow and change and, and watch what God is doing in their lives, and it's fun to watch. And you go, that person I know has made a commitment to God. And there's other people you look at and saying, wow, I sure hope you're, I sure hope you're saved. You say you are, I, you know, but I'm not seeing an excitement for God. I'm not seeing an excitement for going out there. I'm listening to so many of these testimonies out there and reading testimonies and the one thing you keep hearing over and over again from those who are truly saved I just can't help to tell God, people about God you know, it just becomes who you are God has done so much for you and changed you so greatly you want to share with people what's going on and how God has changed you and we see here these people saying God's saying you're saying the right things but I don't know you. Verse 2 says, For they call themselves the holy city and stay themselves upon the Lord, the God of Israel. Stay here literally means to be supported. All right? They're calling themselves holy and they're saying they trust in God. And he says, They call themselves, call upon the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. Okay, so he's saying, you're calling, you're calling on the God of Israel, but really it's the God of, God of hosts, not just Israel. And this is something that he's making a point of. You're calling out to 
the God that you think is on your side, but you need to be on his side. We need to be on God's side, not just have him be on our side, because if you look at the Bible, God, God was taking care of his people, taking care of his people. They kept rebelling, kept rebelling. So he said, fine, you, can go, you get to go into captivity. And I'm going to help them take you into captivity. So when we actually know that, that if God got tired of the sinfulness of the people, he could switch sides real easy because we weren't on his side. And this is important that we stay on God's side, you know, doing things the way he wants to, not just expecting him to bless us for whatever logic we're using. You know, it used to be amazing to me in the, the 70s and 60s, uh, 70s and 80s when you'd witness to people, are you a Christian? Of course I'm a Christian. I'm an American. Okay, being an American does not make you a Christian. You know, well, I, or I, of course I'm a Christian. I go to church. All right, well, that's a little more likely, but going to church is not going to make you a Christian. I love this other one. Of course I'm a, I'm a Christian. My grandpa's a pastor. Uh, and, you know, what does that mean for you? Or dad's a pastor. I go, okay, but are you a Christian? Do you know Jesus? Now, yes, if you go to church, you're more likely to be a Christian. If you have a pastor for a parent who's a good pastor, you're quite likely to be a pastor. But that, but that answer tells me a lot when somebody says, I go to church or my my father or my grandfather or my great-grandfather was a pastor, those tell me a lot about what these people think being a Christian is and that they don't understand what being a Christian is. You know, you know, I'm a Christian because I'm American. We don't hear that one anymore because we have pushed so hard that, you know, that Christianity and America do not go, alike, go together anymore. But in the early part of our country, the morality was Christian morality, plain and simple. Now, I'm not saying everybody was a Christian. Matter of fact, the majority probably weren't Christians. But they learned to read from the Bible. They learned, to, they learned morality. They learned what was right and wrong. And they knew about Jesus and his birth and why he died. So they were quite a large percentage of Christians. But not everybody was a Christian because they were just calling upon the name. You know, I, I, know, I know who to name. <laughs> I, know, I know how to live for him may not know him and this is what God is saying here I'm the Lord of hosts I'm you know you you think you know who you're worshiping verse 3 says I have declared the former things from the beginning and they went forth out of my mouth and I showed them I did them suddenly and they came to pass he's hammering on this again in the book of Isaiah I predicted the future this is the greatest thing in the Bible is that God tells the future and he doesn't tell it with generic anything can happen language Cyrus will deliver my people just 184 years before Cyrus is, is king just a few years before he's born while his nation that he's going to rule is just a little tribe that hasn't even gotten any power yet and he says Cyrus will be my will deliver my people. The, the Messiah will be born of a virgin in the town of Bethlehem. Do you realize that when that was said, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, it wasn't much more than a thousand people. And when it was said that the town of Bethlehem was only a couple hundred people. And they're going, oh, by the way, the Messiah is going to be born there. 
yes, it was famous because Rachel was buried there. You know, Jake, Jacob had wandered in there and all of that. But it was not a big, well-known town. Nobody really cared about Bethlehem. David had picked Jerusalem to be the capital. And Jerusalem was 30, 40 miles out away from Bethlehem. And that's what, if you were going to pick a town for the Messiah to come out of, the Messiah is going to be a king. You would have thought they'll pick Jerusalem. Now, that's where the kings come from. The, king, the kings rule in Jerusalem. That's where they should be. The Messiah should be coming out of Jerusalem. But that wasn't the town they picked, you know, that God picked. <laughs> Uh, but God says, I give you the future before it happens. He's given us the book of Revelation and book of Daniel to tell us what our future is still to come. And people look and say, well, you know, you can't believe that stuff, do you? I go, absolutely. You know, when, when I was first studying the Bible back in the, the six, uh, 70s and 80s, you know, and we would be talking about a cashless society where nobody could buy or sell without a mark, everyone going, that can't happen. Uh, we're virtually in a cashless society already. It's not wouldn't be very hard to have some key uh, addition to our our credit cards or anything that says you can't buy or sell without this this event, and it wouldn't be a big deal to put it on the forehead or the or the or the hand. They're already talking about it. Well, they're doing it in some places. Usually they put them up in the forearm because they're still a little nervous about the hand or the forehead because, because of what the scriptures say. But the stuff is already there. I heard about somebody who put the chip in his hand so he could unlock his doors and everything, but he did it himself. And, but, you know, we hear about it already. We're being laid the groundwork of see how easy this is? You know, we're being encouraged, chip your pets so they can be found. There's a heavy move right on now that's going on, put a chip in your kids. So if they get kidnapped or, or lost, you, you are found. It's, you know, the groundwork is being laid for the completion when we look at this and saying, wow, you know, I don't think these are the mark of the beast. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying these are, but it's laying the foundation for it to be very logical and, and very practical that, well, yeah, we, all we need is this little chip and I don't have to, you know, and I think identity theft is going to be a big part of it. You know, well, everybody's losing their identity. We'll just put a chip in you, and you can't, you can't lose that. You know, and then we look at the Bible and see where, where it says, and we go, wow, God, look, look, look at where we're headed. You know, look, you know, Jesus said there'd be wars and rumors of wars. And when, I, when we were studying that, I talked, and I looked it up, like there's 600 active wars going on right now in this world. Wow. Okay. Most of them are so small, most of, we, we don't hear about them. We have conflicts going on all around the world, and we consider ourselves at peace. But there's all kinds of conflicts going on everywhere. And the Bible said that's the way it would be. We're seeing the world come together as one world. We're seeing religions starting to come together as one religion. There's still a couple holdout religions out there that are pretty good-sized ones, but... Overall, they're, even members of those groups want them to come together. The Christian world wants to come together, you know, at least the ones that have sold out, and say, well, we can just, we can just agree with the Muslims and the Hindus and the Buddhists and everybody else, and we'll just all be one happy family because it's all one God anyway. 
you know, and yeah, they all have different books that say totally different things, but we can just mesh them all together somehow. You know, that is exactly what God said it would happen, and we're seeing it happen. We're becoming one language around the world, or at least the ability to be able to communicate with no problem. If you have a, cell, a smartphone on you, you can communicate with anybody anywhere in the world, and it will actually speak the words for you off, off the phone and take their words and, and interpret them for you. So, I mean, we, it's a good thing on one side. It's a bad thing on another side because it's showing the why did God split up the world in the first place? At the Tower of Babel, he says they will accomplish. They are of one language, one mind. They will accomplish whatever they set their heart to, and it wasn't a good compliment. He says, they will sin against me very boldly, so God confused the languages, people spread around the world, and now everything that he says of one mind and one language is coming back, and we're seeing everything going against God, because man's sinful nature has that desire. And then you add satanic influences and all this other stuff that goes on, and we're seeing Everything the Tower of Babel broke up, coming back. coming back, and it says that Babylon will rise in the last days. The Tower of Babel was in Babylon. It was the center of power. It is a place that Satan has put his home as his home uh, city. As God said, Jerusalem is mine. Satan has said, made Babylon his. Babylon is rising again in our day. I really do believe it's going to be the center of power during the Antichrist reign, if not before. It will not surprise me if one day the UN moves to Babylon. He told us the future before it started. And as we see this, it's kind of interesting that we see all of this. And he says, I have declared the former things from the beginning. They went forth out of my mouth and I showed them and did them suddenly and they came to pass. So God assures that they're going to come to pass. How does he assure that they're going to come to pass? Number one is that they weren't predicted. He is already in the future, so he's just telling us what's going to happen. All right? And so it would just be like us if we had watched a movie, and I don't know how many of you have ever rewatched a movie, and you go, and all of a sudden you see things that you didn't realize were there before, or now you see the foreshadowing that you didn't catch before. You know, and if you were telling somebody the story about that movie, you could tell them everything that was going to, you know, going to happen. Uh, have you ever sat with somebody who is going to tell you everything about the movie they've watched before? It's the first time you've watched it, and they were telling you, oh, just wait, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. Would you just shut up? I, I, I want to watch the movie. I don't need to be told what's going to happen in the movie. Yet God has told us what's going to happen in the movie. You know, the, rest of the, the rest of this time, he tells us exactly what's going to happen in the movie. But all this stuff has been developed and has been developed from long before because Adam and Eve was trained by God. You know, within two generations, they were doing metallurgy, extensive metallurgy that had to be rediscovered after the flood and wasn't rediscovered until centuries <laughs> after the flood. And yet it only took two generations in the, in the, before the flood to get the same knowledge. And I believe it was because God gave it to them. God gave them the knowledge, the basics on it, and they moved forward on it very quickly. But it took consequences of sin, 
they, they are in the process of rebuilding it, and I do believe it's because Satan wants it rebuilt. And you know, for a long time, they were saying Babylon was this symbolic place. But we're seeing Babylon being rebuilt in the Middle East, in well, the northern part of the Middle East. It's being rebuilt, and it's becoming a power, just as it has been in the past. Which is why I'm not going to be surprised if the UN one day just moves to Babylon. It's one more, one more feature of God being true. Now, there has been so much over the years that I have studied where people go, well, that can't happen. You know, the whole world is going to see the two prophets die and, and watch them resurrect. In today's world, in the last 10 years, we understand how that can be real easy. There'll be a channel. The, the prophets, 24-7, you know, <laughs> uh, channel. You can go back to the 90s and think that that was not that big a deal. I remember in the early days of news, you got the news report spoken to you, and you saw the pictures, if anybody cared, a week later. You, know, you didn't get to see things happening as they happen like we do. You know, and go back even further before you even had TV or movies. You know, it's like you never saw this stuff. God's word is true. Even when we don't understand it, it's true. And we're starting to realize that God was literal in more places than we think that he's literal. And this is why I don't like to see people spiritualize things. You know, because I've watched over the years how in days prophecies are changing drastically because of technology catching up and saying, wow, it wasn't just an idea that the whole world was going to watch and we can actually, whole world can watch. And we're starting to see all these things that happen and see that God is in there. And he's given us the future ahead of time. We may not understand it. Can you imagine what these guys would have been seeing when, if God showed them these things? And in John's case, we know he was shown this. A first century person seeing our world. Seeing buildings that he could not even imagine, imagine a building. You know, seeing a 60-story you know, building, a 100-story building, and not knowing, what is this? Kind of looks like a building, but never seen anything. You know, he had seen a two-story building, you know, and that was big. Uh, and all of a sudden, he's seeing buildings that just go to the sky. He's seeing chariots that race around faster than any horses that he can picture, you know, without horses. <laughs> it would have been tough. It would have been tough for any of us, too. Yeah. You know, but even think in our terms, in our terms, I mean, I grew up as a science fiction not watching Star Trek. But doors that open? Oh, yeah. Automatically, as you walked up to them, that didn't happen in the 60s. You know, everything that they had on there actually has been coming true. Everything being reported to them on, on pads, you know, and, and we now have the same tablets and everything all over the place long before they were out, out and being used. So, you know, we look at this and say, even then we were like, wow, you know, it's... Can you really do things like that? Or will things like that actually happen? Yeah, and yet they did. And that was just a short time ago, and we were still being wowed by things. Yeah. So looking at what God says, these are what it, and he prophesies them, and he tells us about them. It's an amazing thing. And we need to be able to start really looking at the Bible literally as much as possible, which is when I taught the, how to study the Bible class, 
the first rule is you take it literally unless it absolutely cannot be literal. And we have done, over the years, on many of the things that are prophecies, we look at, well, it can't literally be real. We can, no, nobody's going to see this over, you know, the prophets over the whole world, so there has to be some symbolic. And now we know God knew what he was talking about. So we need to be careful not to spiritualize, not to, to make things symbolic just because we can't comprehend how it might be true at the point that we're at. When I would be looking at people going, well, you know, this has to be symbolic because you can't watch them going, I don't know about that. Uh, it sure sounds like it could happen someday. I don't know how. I didn't, and that was back in the technology days when we couldn't figure it out. We have the third temple that should be built pretty soon because the Jewish, the Orthodox Jews want that third temple in Jerusalem on the Mount. The, the hard part is how are they going to put it there? The Muslim temple isn't on the site of the original temple. It was thought to be, but satellites are showing us that it's not there. With us recognizing Jerusalem as the capital, it, it gives them a lot more power over it. But because the Dome of the Rock is not on the original site, and Ezekiel, when he was told to measure the, the third temple, was told not to include the court which is where the Dome of the Rock would be sitting if they built the, built the temple where it belongs. The Dome of the Rock would be sitting in the, in the... The Antichrist will probably come along and say something along the lines of, we'll put both temples up there, we'll put a wall or something between them so that you don't, you know, the, the other's not blocked or we'll, we'll do something to keep them separate. But both can go on, on, the, on the Temple Mount as it is and it fits scripture. So that when they really build, yeah. the, when they build the third temple, we will be able to have the temple. He was told not to include the, the outer court, the, the, which we know of as the court of the Gentiles, because it was given, he said literally, it was given unto the Gentiles. The dome of the rock sits where the court of the Gentiles will, will fit. Now, it still doesn't make it easy for them to put another temple up there. So, I mean, it'll be, a, a miracle of some, you know, you know, satanic miracle in this case to put it there because it'll, it'll have to take the Islamic religion saying, hey, we're going to let you build something there. They haven't let that happen in any time. But you know, when the master of the Islamic religion, Satan, comes and says, we're going to do it anyway, it'll be pretty easy to do. Right now, they are very adamant that it's not going to happen. But when Satan comes along and says, yes, it will happen, it will happen. You know, because he is the master of all false religions. He is the center, technically, of every false religion out there. And it's going to happen, because God said it will happen. There's no real sense for the temple to go at all, other than God says it's going to be there. He, during the Millennial Kingdom, he will use the temple as a worship center and sacrifices will continue, will be reinstored. Not certain paths of ones that Jesus has fulfilled, but the total burnt offering, because what does the total burnt offering represent? Does anybody remember that study? The, the burnt offering sacrifice is our devotion to God. My, it's a picture of my devotion to God, so he'll allow that one. The sin offering won't need to be continued during the millennial kingdom, because Jesus fulfilled it. 
the Passover lamb will not need to go on to the millennial kingdom because Jesus fulfilled it. The thanksgiving sacrifices could go back on because they're giving God thanks. God says there's going to be sacrifices, and a lot of times Christians would look at that and go, well, you can't have sacrifices in the millennial kingdom because Jesus is ruling and he already filled them. Jesus didn't fulfill all the sacrifices, and he didn't fulfill all of them because some of them were just man worshiping God. He, he fulfilled all the ones that were for salvation and all of that, but the burnt sacrifice was, God, here's my dedication to you. You know, I'd burn myself, but you don't want me to burn people, so I'm burning the cow <laughs> to show that I'm totally de uh, devoted to you. You know, here's my thanksgiving offering to show how thankful I am to you. Those ones will be in operation during the millennial kingdom when the sacrifices are restored, but not the ones for salvation, not the ones for the sin being covered, not the ones that Jesus fulfilled. So we need to be, and that's why it is important to go back to, the, to what was being taught in the Old Testament to understand when we come up this. Why did, why did the Catholic Church say that Jesus uh, died on a Friday? Because he died the day before the Sabbath. And they go, well, Sabbath is Saturday. No, Sabbath is Saturday. The day is Saturday, but it's also Passover, Yom Kippur. No matter what day those fall on, those were Sabbath days. So when Jesus died as the Passover lamb, all he had to do was die right before Passover started, and he was died the day before Sabbath, which is why many of us, you know, truly believe that Jesus didn't die on a Friday and be in the grave for Saturday. He was in the grave for three days, just as he said. He said, as the sign of Jonah, three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, will he be dead. Resurrected Sunday, Saturday, Friday, Thursday, died on a Wednesday, <laughs> and then was in the grave for three days and three nights and, ro and rose again. Because of misunderstandings of the Old Testament, really strange things have been put into Christianity. And this is why we want to get into the Old Testament so we can understand the Old Testament, so we can understand what it is. Because one thing we've got to always remember, besides walking with Jesus, they were all Jews. When they wrote, they wrote from a Jewish perspective, a Jewish understanding of things. And if we don't understand what they understood, we will come up with some really bizarre understandings of, of what, they, what they wrote. And this is why it's hard sometimes for us, because we're not Jews. And then all we can do is start studying the Old Testament and try to get a feel for what they were understanding. Because the Jews, even to this day, the most secular Jew knows a few things about the, about the Bible. They know Passover. They know the deliverance of, from Egypt. That is important to them. They know about the synagogue. They know about their sacrificial system. Even though they have never practiced, they, they know about it. The Jews right now are in a very interesting bind. All of their laws and rules say that you have to have a sacrifice to be able to go to heaven, and yet there's no temple to sacrifice in. So they have gone to a practicality of, well, we can't have a sacrifice, so good works will get you to heaven. Even though every word of the Old Testament tells them that good works isn't going to get them to heaven either, but they don't read their Bibles any more than most Christians read their Bibles. And that's a sad thing, because it is a shock to me how many Christians have never read even the whole New Testament. 
much less the whole Bible. Every time I read it, it's different. You get more out of it every time, and it's going to be true, you know, 50 years from now. If you read it every, every year for 50 years, it'll be different new information coming out of it every single time you read it. And most Christians haven't read much of the Bible at all. They might have read the Gospels. Maybe. You know, they started reading the Bible. They started in Genesis, and they got... Genesis was fairly interesting. They, they made it through Genesis. They went Exodus, pretty good for the first, first part of Exodus. A lot of excitement. Moses is delivering the people. And then it gets pretty boring when they start talking about the sacrifices and the, this, that, and the other. And, then, and if they trudge through Exodus, they make it to Leviticus. All about the worship of God in the temple in great detail. And most people stop at Leviticus. But if they're really, really pushed through, they hit numbers. And most of them never make it past numbers. Deuteronomy is pretty interesting. If they could have pushed through num, if they could have pushed through numbers and hit Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth are pretty interesting books. First and Second Samuel, pretty interesting book. You know, but that numbers usually stopped everybody who started at the beginning of the book. Well, I can remember when, be honest, when I was younger, I would skip you know, genealogy. So and so begat. Okay, no more, no more begats. <laughs> now I read them because I want to, because I know, I know the names of the people now a lot. I'm going, oh, remember that one? Oh, oh, yeah, that person, that person's pretty important. Oh, yep, that one. Something we didn't really hear. Not everybody on the list is famous. <laughs> and, it, and it is hard for us because they're names that we wouldn't use. You know, uh, their job, you know, tongue twisters to us, you know, but in their day and age, they weren't that big a deal. They would probably look at our names and say, boy, you guys have funny names. Uh, but God gives us the future. And he says in verse 4, why did he tell us the future? Because I knew that you are obstinate and that your neck is iron sinew and that your brow is as brass. He goes, you're thick-headed, stiff-necked, obstinate people. So I gave you the future before it happened so that you would know that I am God. And people still won't believe. You know, you know, I kind of love this, the way he puts it. You're obstinate, your neck is, is like iron, stiff neck. You know, you're not going to, but I love this one, and brow of brass. <laughs> you're not going to let anything get through your skull, <laughs> even though I told you. And God says, I've told you this. And why did he tell us? Because he knows us. <laughs> he knows that we need the proof. And you know, this is something that is important for us. And it's something that has irritated me over the years when I would talk to Christians. Well, I just believe it because I read it in the Bible. Okay, but yeah, that's fine. But do you understand why, why as well? It has to move out of just the realm of faith into something that I truly believe and I have reasons to believe. And this is one of the things that I talk with a lot of people that have been suckered into the idea of evolution because they just couldn't understand, you know, the scriptures. You know, God says he created the world in six literal days. And it makes sense when you really start studying it and look at all the science that says that this world is young, this universe is young. In spite of what science keeps trying to pound into our head, four point. 4.3 trillion years old in our universe. You know, I really like to know how they get that number. 
because everything that can date has a much smaller life, so there's nothing they can date on it. We are understanding through our current understandings that light is not even, con the speed of light is not constant. It's constant within our area. Lack of, lack of gravity speeds up light. So you get light out in, in outer space with no gravity. How much faster does it go? They're still trying to figure that out. So these things that they say may are billions and billions of years away, if light increases exponentially as gravity decreases, they could be very young, extremely young. Now, I don't know. I don't know what we're going to find out about it, but there's all kinds of interesting math, mathematical equations on that. But we have cosmologists out there showing us that the Earth, the world, the universe isn't as big as we think it is. The world is not near as old as we think it is. There's not enough salt and minerals in our oceans to be trillions of years old. We're not far enough away from the sun to be trillions of years old. The moon is not far enough away from us to be trillions of years old because the moon is moving away from the earth at a constant rate every year. So if the, if we had been, the moon had been circling around for billions of years, it would no longer be in orbit of the earth. The sun shrinks at a certain rate if, it had, if we had been around for 4.3 trillion years, the Earth would be inside the Sun. We're not going to have much life developing inside the Sun. That's well, a young world, after all. And, but science totally ignores every proof of a young Earth. Things that really get people caught up in evolution. Hegel's illustrations were proven wrong in the 50s. That's when you start out as a... Start out as a no, start out as a as a little embryo and then you become a fish and then you become all these different things through the, through the generations. It was proven wrong in the 50s. It's still today in biology textbooks as a proof for evolution. We have all these different creations of man, Nebraska man being used in the Scopes trial to prove evolution. It was created from one tooth. One tooth and they made it into this prehistoric looking man. They will tell us that there's only 4% difference in the DNA structure of a human and a chimp. Okay, well, we have trillions of bits of information in DNA. So f even four or 5% difference is a huge difference. It sounds really bad, yeah, there's only 4% difference, but we're talking about millions of pieces of information that are different in that 4%. 4%? I have no problem with that. <laughs> There's a whole lot of differences in there because it, 4% depends on, if I'm talking 4% of 10, there's only four differences. I get it up into a trillion, 4% is a pretty big difference. Okay, that's 40 million differences. <laughs> That's a lot of differences. You know, and this is the whole thing with evolution. It's built on a bunch of false information. And even when it's true, it's given in such a way that makes people think that it's not that big a deal. 4%. There's only 4% difference. All right? If I make 30 million differences between two airplanes, I'm going to have two very different airplanes. If I make... 30 million 
the 40 million differences between two automobiles, those automobiles are going to be very different. You know, but I only made 4% difference. Okay. <laughs> you know, we need to be able to understand science supports a young earth. Science supports the fact that there must be a supernatural start. The laws of thermodynamics demand a supernatural start to the world. Demand it. Now, I'm not saying it demands our God, but it, start, it demands a supernatural, beyond nature, start. Now, I don't know what you want to define that supernatural as. I'm going to, I'm going to say that God knew what he was talking about. That he is the supernatural one that started it because he fits it, his book fits it. But the, the laws of thermodynamics are real simple. Energy is neither created nor destroyed. It just changes states. Which leaves you with one of two things. It either had a supernatural start or it has always existed. The second law of thermodynamics says that energy tends to, tends to deadness. A fire will die out. What they're saying is energy tends to be inert. Given over enough time, it will be inert. So if energy was eternal, we should be in a dead universe. Because it always, if it's always existed into eternity past, it would be dead by now. And people go, we're in the middle of it. Nope, you can't be in the middle of eternity. <laughs> I'm sorry, you can't be in the middle of eternity. If it has always existed, we should be dead. Energy should be dead. So it had to have had a supernatural start. All right? So science does prove the supernatural. God is not part of creation. He is supernatural. So he was able to start things from outside of nature and build the rules of nature. So if our universe keeps going, eventually die. Theoretically, it, you know, it'd be a long time, but yeah. not, not, with any, not with any time frame that we could think of. 4.3 4. trillion years might be enough time for it to die out. Okay. Um, but even at that, but even at that, it would not, you know, it would be working. And, and what they'll tell you is that's true of a closed system. Well, the universe is a closed system. It just happens to be a very large closed system. God is outside of our universe, outside of our, of our world. Our, our, rules, our rules, our way of thinking, nothing applies to God because he is outside of our universe, which is why it's eternal life. Because it's not bound to this world, which is going to be destroyed. The supernatural is outside of nature. And God is outside of nature, completely outside of nature. He's the one that created nature. He's the one that put the rules of our universe into place. This is the problem that has been developed by man. Aristotle, Socrates, all of them looked at how can I understand things by nature? Uh, what I see is all that exists, so therefore I have to make my evaluation by what I see. And that's how the scientists operate, even though they cannot see. And this is why it's hard for me to believe they believe in evolution, because there's no proof for evolution. Nobody's ever witnessed it. And... You know, because that's what they want to make up, literally. And most of them, we've said this before, almost every great atheist evolution has said something similar. Of, we, I know that there's holes in evolution, but I cannot accept the alternative. 
cannot accept that there's a God. Why can't they accept that there's a God? Because if there's a God, there's rules that they have to follow. Or the God has the, uh, the permission to build the rules and claim the rules. And most of them, when you look at their lives, they're enjoying their sin. And mostly they're into some awful, what we would call awful sins. So if there's no God, there's no judgment. You can't judge my lifestyle if there's no God. That's why they, a lot of people reject God. Not because they don't believe there's a God, but because if there is a God, God has the right to make the rules. And if he makes the rules and he is God, then I have to obey him. So it's much easier just to say there's no God. And make your own rules. And make my own rules because there is no God. That is what evolution is all about. And this is why when you talk to an evolutionist, they, don't, they hate it because you know, they'll talk to you about this was a bad thing. Why? Why was it bad? Well, it's just bad. Well, who's defining bad? If you're an evolutionist, you can't say anything is bad. Well, it's bad that a species it goes extinct. Why? It's been going on for, by your thinking, tri trillions of years. It's the, it's the norm. It's the norm. One, the strong destroy the weak. What are you worried about the extinction of a species for if you're really a true evolutionist that believes that the only way you think things are going to get better is for the weak to be burnt, you know, killed so that you can get better? It, it's a bizarre way of thinking, and yet the lost world does not understand how messed up their thinking is. You know, most Christians don't know how bad the, the world's thinking is. And then they start saying, oh, this is what God says. And their eyes start opening up and they start seeing the whole, the whole realm of what's being said. But, you know, it is so amazing to me. When I was going to college, it was so amazing that people would say two diametrically opposed statements in the same sentence. You'd point it out to them and go, which one's right? Both. You can't be thinking and not thinking at the same time. So which, which is it? And this is how bad most, most, much of what they said is. Because the, the natural mind does not properly think. It is always looking at what's best for me. Always. Because we are selfish beings. Without Christ, we are selfish beings that want to do only what's best for us. Don't believe it? Look at the lives of the Bible. You know, look at your own life, but most people won't open their eyes and look at their own life. But, but you know, every decision we make in the flesh is what's good for me. Maybe if I get a little altruistic, I may be what's good for my family. But even, even at that, if it's, if it's bad for me but good for my family, I'm probably going to choose me. You know, some really nice people might choose their family a little bit because they love them. But get outside of their family, uh-uh. You know, what's, what's in it for me? Why do we get angry with people? Usually they've offended me. You have not done what I wanted. You have not done what I think is, should have been done. And we get upset because I have been hurt. My pride has been hurt. You didn't, you didn't, make, you didn't like me as much as I should be liked. You didn't say the right things to me. And God teaches us to be more selfless and serve him. You know, and changes us and changes the way we think. 
This is why when we're a Christian, we, start, we do start thinking differently. We literally do start caring about people. And the world thinks we're weird. And we are weird according to the world's standards. We're not weird according to God's standards, but we are very weird according to the world. You actually care about these people? You can forgive these people? You like these people? Well, I would use love, but they would use like. You know, you love those people? You're able to forgive? If we think back in our life before we really got to know God, forgiving people? Uh-uh, not, not going to happen. You know, to even to love them and do something nice for them? Well, maybe if, they, if we were close to them and they'd been nice to us, maybe. But to love the world? To love those who hate us and are trying to hurt us? Uh-uh, that's not going to happen. Not without God. And God changes who we are, and he changes the way we think. He moves us. Literally, it says we're translated out of this world into his, into his kingdom. And he gives us a new way of thinking and a new way of acting. And it's an amazing thing. The more we get into his word, the more we get to know him, and the more we realize that our, 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 mess, our, our mind and our thinking is a mess, and the more we make it applied to his, the better off it gets, we get. And the more we see him at work. I've been a Christian long enough. I look at some people and I'm going, I don't know how these people make it. You know, how can they make it the way they're thinking? And in reality, they're probably not. They're heavily into drugs and alcohol, trying to numb their minds. They're, we're seeing a world that just wants to, you know, Get, get, get the Valium. Not, you know, I don't want to space myself out, but I just want to forget. I just want to feel good. I just want to feel, I just want to feel okay. Yeah. Just let me mellow out. The more we're into God, the, the more we are in a place where he puts a peace and a calmness in us that's real. That's real. I have never needed all that other stuff. To depend on God gives us that peace, gives us that calmness. I don't need stuff. I don't need artificial you know, uh, ways to get into this you know, temporary place of being <laughs> numbed you know, because God makes it real. You know, and it's a wonderful place to be when God makes it real. God gives us a peace that passes understanding. When we're just out there enjoying life and people look at you and go on, you know, you're, you're, you're so happy. You're so, you're so joyful. Yep, God is, God is center of my life and he gives me a peace that passes understanding. You know, you, get, you need to get to know God. <laughs> but you know, the sad thing to me is when I meet Christians who don't know God that way. I'm not going to say they're not Christian, but they just have not spent time getting to know God. And they have to find other means to try to get temporary peace. And God's saying, I've got it for you. Trust me. Depend on me. And the more we depend on him, the deeper and stronger that peace goes. <laughs> the more peaceful we are, the more we don't need external stimuli to get peaceful. You know, and we just say, God, I trust you. 
And this is why I say over and over, my two greatest things is, number one, that all things work together for good. I know God's in control. And then the, the flip side of that is, I know God's in control. No matter what happens to me, God is in control. I may not think that he's in control at the moment. My mind may not be able to understand how he's in control. But I keep telling myself, God is in control. Job did not really understand that God was in control when he loses his family and all of his possessions. He had to have had some questions. God, did you, did you go on vacation all of a sudden? He probably, you know, he wouldn't have said it just like we wouldn't have, but, you know, we think those ways. God, I'm having a whole bunch of bad stuff happen. Uh, what did you do? Uh, you went out for the weekend and forgot, forgot about the rest of the world? You know, where, where, where have you been? But if we really, truly say, God, I know you're in control, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to enjoy what's going on, but at least we'll recognize, God, you're in control. I'm going to be peaceful. I don't know what you're trying to teach me. I don't know what you're trying to do. But you haven't lost your marbles. You haven't become impotent. You didn't, you didn't break your leg and, 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 and be recuperating for these last six weeks. You're still in control. And we just be able to grab hold of that, and that gives peace. To know that God is in control and that he has a plan. He has a plan always. We may not, we probably won't understand it. Even if he told us it, we might not understand. Sometimes we will understand after the fact. But the good news is he is always in control. You know, in that particular instance, we'll end with this. I love it when the, in, uh, in uh, Corey Ten Boom's story, when she, they're in the they're in the barracks with all the fleas. You know, and Corey says, I'll never be thankful for the fleas. And her sister goes, the guards never come in here to harass us. We can have Bible studies without them coming in. You know, something so stupid. But look at the difference between two attitudes. I don't know what God's doing, and I'm going to gripe and complain about it. Look at God's, God's in control. The guards don't even come in to bother us because of these fleas. How do we look at it? A lot of it is attitude. If I trust that God is in control, I rest in that. May not understand it. May not, may not make sense, but I can see the light. Where I can be bitter and complaining about it. God, you, I just don't understand how you, why this is good, and I don't understand anything about this, and I don't really believe that you're in control of this, because you would, this would never have happened if you were in control. And we don't have Corey saying that, but that was what her mind was saying. God, you totally lost your marbles. You know, we were, we were nice and comfortable in our house. Now we're arrested. We're in these, these stinking places. The guards humiliating us. And the sister's saying, and the sister's saying, God is still in control. In spite of everything we're seeing, God is still in control. And it's important for us to be able to say, God, you are true. No matter what, God is true. And God is in control. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. Lord, we thank you that you love us enough to tell us and prove yourself to us. Lord, help us to always remember that you are in control and that you love us. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.